0: Good afternoon, everyone. In the last some weeks, we've been discussing the two covenants, and today we're going to wrap up our series of sermons on that subject, the two covenants. And the first item that we will address in today's sermon as we conclude this series is to whom does the new covenant apply can one become a party to the new covenant merely by for example confessing the name of christ or professing to believe in christ does one have to be a member of a particular church organization or body to be a party to the new covenant Is the new covenant collective or individual? And how long is the the covenant to remain in effect? Once entered into, can that covenant be broken? These are questions that we need to understand the answers to if we are to know where we stand before God with relation to the covenant, the new covenant. First of all, we need to understand that salvation is is an individual matter. Now, many people would probably concede the point that salvation is an individual matter between a person and God, but nevertheless, even if most people might concede that, we need to establish the point on solid ground scripturally before proceeding to the next point in our discussion. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, THE SCRIPTURE SAYS, WORK OUT YOUR OWN SALVATION WITH FEAR AND TREMBLING, WORK OUT YOUR OWN SALVATION WITH FEAR AND TREMBLING, INDIVIDUAL RESPONSIBILITY FOR THE DEVELOPMENT OF GODLY CHARACTER IS INESCAPABLE IN THAT STATEMENT, WE ARE TO WORK OUT OUR OWN SALVATION, THE CONCLUSION THAT SALVATION REQUIRES ACTION ON OUR PART, ALTHOUGH THIS IS DENIED BY MANY PEOPLE, But the conclusion that salvation requires action on our part cannot be avoided if we take this admonition literally, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In the Williams translation, in a footnote, Williams translation of the New Testament, Charles Williams goes on to say that the Greek word translated salvation here, and I'm quoting, does not have its usual sense, but means the process of character building into the likeness of Christ. Now, it is certain that numerous scriptures tell us that salvation is a matter involving the development of individual character. And working out one's salvation implies that process of developing individual character. Paul warns us that as we read in Romans 14 and verse 10, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and everyone will give account of himself to God. So we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will be required to give account individually. So, our accountability to God is an individual and a personal matter. In the book of Ezekiel, God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel, saying in Ezekiel 18, beginning with verse 30, I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways. Every one according to his ways says the eternal God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Now, we are reading this from the Old Testament, but nevertheless this admonition applies to those living under the new covenant as well as the old covenant because it goes on to say in the next verse, cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit. And that's what the new covenant is about, a new heart and a new spirit. goes on to say, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So we see that we are being judged individually and that we are admonished to repent. And of course, that is an individual and personal matter. Now, that means that entering into and maintaining the covenant relationship with God is also a personal and an individual matter. We're told, as we just read in verse 30 of Ezekiel 18, that we will be judged individually, and therefore we are to repent and receive a new heart and a new spirit. And we are called on to enter into that covenant relationship with God whereby we partake of God's Spirit. Paul wrote of the ministers appointed under the New Covenant. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul wrote that God has also made us, speaking of the ministers under the New Covenant, has made us sufficient as ministers of the New Covenant, not the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. A saint is described in the Bible as one who has entered into a covenant relationship with God, and that would be through repentance, certainly in the case of the New Covenant. And it says in Psalm 50 and verse 5, "'Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Gather my saints together.'" So a saint, according to the Bible, is one who has entered into the covenant relationship with Jesus Christ through sacrifice. Now, each individual must determine if he wants to repent and apply that sacrifice of the new covenant and thereby enter into the covenant with God. And the primary sacrifice of the new covenant is the blood of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 9 and verse 11, Hebrews 9 beginning with verse 11, it says, Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation or this building as it could be translated referring to the temple that existed under the old covenant system. Going on it says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions, under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So Jesus Christ sacrificed the blood that He shed, giving His life to pay for our sins, is the primary sacrifice of the new covenant, the essential sacrifice which makes possible our reconciliation with God and hence the forgiveness of sins and our potential for entering into that covenant relationship with God. Now once a person has made a positive decision to repent and to commit himself to God in the faith of Jesus Christ, then he is obliged to remain faithful if he is to inherit the promise of eternal life that is a part of that covenant. In Hebrews 10, verse 35, Paul wrote, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Notice that we will not receive the promise, that is the promise of the eternal inheritance, eternal life in God's kingdom until after we have done the will of God. Going on verse 37, it says, Forget a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. If anyone draws back, in other words, if you forsake the covenant, if you quit somewhere along the path toward God's kingdom, if you turn around and reject the covenant and do not continue to endure, then it says, my soul has no pleasure in him. Paul goes on to say, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So once we enter into that covenant, we are obliged to continue. It is a lifetime agreement, a lifetime commitment that we are entering into, and it has to do with eternal life. It's not something that you can give up on once you enter into it if you expect to be in God's kingdom. Now, the covenant, even though we must make the individual and personal commitment to it, it is also important to realize that the agreement, the covenant, is also collective or national in character. Now remember that the scripture we quoted above from Ezekiel 18, verses 30 and 31 contained remarks pertaining to individuals, and yet over all those remarks were addressed to Israel, the nation of God. In Romans 9 and verse 4, we read that the covenants, both THE OLD COVENANT, AS WELL AS THE NEW, THE SONSHIP, THE PROMISES, AND SO FORTH, ALL PERTAIN TO ISRAEL. AND IN HEBREWS 8 AND VERSE 8, IT SAYS THE NEW COVENANT IS MADE WITH THE HOUSE OF ISRAEL AND THE HOUSE OF Judah. IN HEBREWS 8 AND VERSE 8, IT SAYS, BECAUSE FINDING FAULT WITH THEM, HE SAYS, BEHOLD, THE DAYS ARE COMING, SAYS THE LORD, WHEN I WILL MAKE A NEW COVENANT WITH THE HOUSE OF ISRAEL, and with the house of Judah. But this is spiritual Israel and spiritual Judah that is being spoken of here. And that means those who are converted. In Romans 2 and verse 28, it says, "...he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh." But he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit not in the letter whose praise is not from men but from God. So the house of Judah that God is making this covenant with would certainly include physical Jews but it is not limited to them. It is those who are spiritually circumcised. Circumcised in heart and in spirit. And those are the true Jews, as far as God is concerned. In Romans 9, verse 6, "...but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel." Speaking of the physical Israel, HE SAYS, THEY ARE NOT ALL ISRAEL WHO ARE OF ISRAEL, OF PHYSICAL ISRAEL, NOR ARE THEY ALL CHILDREN BECAUSE THEY ARE THE SEED OF ABRAHAM, THAT IS, THE PHYSICAL DESCENDANTS OF ABRAHAM. BUT IN ISAAC YOUR SEED SHALL BE CALLED. THAT IS, THOSE WHO ARE THE CHILDREN OF THE FLESH, THESE ARE NOT THE CHILDREN OF GOD, BUT THE CHILDREN OF THE PROMISE ARE COUNTED AS THE SEED. SO WHAT HE'S SAYING HERE IS THAT SPIRITUALLY, Israel is comprised of those who are children of the promise. In other words, those who are of of faith in Jesus Christ, those who are circumcised of heart, those who have been converted and come under the new covenant, is what he's saying. So God is creating out of those who enter into the new covenant a new nation. And when an individual enters into that covenant, he automatically becomes a citizen of that nation, spiritual Israel. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, speaking to the church, he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. So the church, those who are converted, the saints who make up the church comprise a holy nation, spiritual Israel. Now, we are referred to here in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 as a royal priesthood. And this is actually a prophetic statement by Peter showing what we are to become when the church is fully mature and the covenant is consummated. But nevertheless, it shows that we are entering into a national covenant. And as I said before, the new covenant is in a sense the constitution of that nation. And the church is now in the embryonic stage of what will become a millennial ruling priesthood and holy nation composed of children of God bearing the likeness of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, We are now fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So we are both citizens of this nation, so to speak, and we are also members of the household of God. It is spoken of both as a kingdom or a nation and also a household. And the household of God ultimately is the nation of God. Now, Jesus Christ is referred to as the messenger of the covenant, Malachi chapter 3, and he came preaching the message of the kingdom of God. And that message was that a literal kingdom was to be established on the earth under the rule of the Messiah. And we read that in Revelation 11 and verse 15 and other scriptures that tell us very clearly that that's what the kingdom of God is, and that was the message that Christ was preaching. Those who enter into the covenant in this age and then remain faithful to death or until Christ returns will, after Jesus Christ returns to establish his kingdom, they will rule with Christ as kings and priests. As we read in Revelation 20 and verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So they will be both priests and kings under Christ, that is, will have administrative authority of some sort in that kingdom. Of course, Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will be ruling over the entire earth and in a sense the entire universe as he is doing now under the Father, under the Father's authority. But others will have administrative responsibilities assigned to them under Jesus Christ. In that sense, they will be reigning with Christ and will be priests of God, which means that they will be teaching guiding and instructing the people who will be ruled, which will be the people of the earth. Now, since the new covenant is being made with the church of God, you might ask, how does one recognize where that church is? Where is the church with which Christ is making this covenant? We need to understand that the true church of God is not identical with any corporate organization of men. It is not identical with any corporate organization of men despite what claims that various church organizations have made and various individuals who have often appointed themselves to positions of leadership and gathered a following and claim that their church comprises the church of God and That church exclusively is the church of God. That's not what the Bible teaches. That cannot be sustained from a careful study of the Bible. Even in the apostolic age, where there was at least in the early years remarkable unity in the church, soon schisms developed due to the carnality of men. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, you are still carnal, For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men because there are divisions and envy and strife among you, among people in the church? Paul also wrote of false brethren in the church. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 26, Galatians 2, verse 4, he mentions false brethren... In the church, and alludes to such individuals elsewhere. Other books of the New Testament also mention false teachers within the church, or claiming to be a part of the church. Destructive heresies and sensual persons who caused division among the brethren of the church. And Jesus Christ, in His Mount Olivet prophecy in Matthew 24, warned that there would be people saying that He was. THE CHRIST, AND YET DECEIVING MANY. IN OTHER WORDS, COMING CLAIMING TO REPRESENT CHRIST, AND YET DECEIVING PEOPLE. SO JUST BECAUSE A PERSON CLAIMS TO REPRESENT CHRIST, JUST BECAUSE A PERSON CLAIMS TO BE TEACHING CHRIST'S MESSAGE, DOES NOT NECESSARILY MEAN THAT'S WHERE CHRIST IS WORKING. VERY EARLY IN THE HISTORY OF THE CHURCH THERE WERE PERSECUTIONS aimed at the faithful, and brethren were forced to flee for their lives, and they became scattered. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, Now Saul was consenting to his death, that is, Stephen's death, as he was murdered, as recounted in the previous chapter. And Paul was a part of the mob that murdered Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So this was fairly early in the history of the church, and we see that people were being persecuted and they were scattered to different places. And for virtually the entire history of the church since its founding, the true church of God has been persecuted. And often, brethren who are a part of the Church of God, have been forced to flee, just as people did at the time of Stephen's death, or shortly after Stephen's death. And they've been forced to flee, and they have been scattered and divided up into small and isolated groups, often hiding out in mountainous areas, in isolated groups. And so from... The standpoint of where the church was physically during all of that span of time, 2,000 years, most of the time it has consisted of small scattered groups, often who had no contact with each other or very little contact with each other and were warned in various places in the Scripture to test and to reject false teachers, of which there are many. John wrote in 1 John 4 and verse 2, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So if you want to find out where the true church is, you don't just believe anyone that claims to represent Christ. You don't just go to the nearest church down in the corner that calls itself a Christian church and necessarily assume that that's where God is working or that's where the true church is. You have to test the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets, not a few, but many false prophets have gone out into the world. Peter wrote in Second Peter chapter 2, beginning of the verse 1, but there were also false prophets among the people even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Notice that Peter warned that there would be false teachers, who would bring in destructive heresies. And many, not a few, but many would follow their destructive ways. And the way of truth would be blasphemed. Now this tells us something about where the true church is going to be found. And that is that it will be following the truth. That it will be following the truth. The truth of God's word. And to test the spirits, what you have to do is you have to test what is taught and compare it with the Word of God and find out if it is indeed consistent with the teachings of Scripture. The true disciples of Jesus Christ are those who abide in or who live by His teachings, who live by the teachings of Jesus Christ, who live by the teachings of the Word of God, not the traditions and perverted teachings of men, contrary to the Word of God but the true disciples of Christ will live according to Christ's teachings. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31, to those Jews who believed in him, he said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So, We are to live, if we are to be true disciples of Jesus, we are to live according to the truth, the word of God. And the truth shall make you free. So we have to be studying God's word, and we have to be able to compare what is taught by those doing the teaching with God's word to find out and determine if it is true, if we're to find the true church. THE TRUE CHURCH OF GOD IS A SPIRITUAL ENTITY MADE UP OF THOSE WHO ABIDE IN CHRIST'S TEACHINGS. AND THEY ARE DESCRIBED IN THE BOOK OF REVELATION. IN REVELATION 12, and VERSE 17, IT SAYS, THE DRAGON WAS ENRAGED WITH THE WOMAN, THAT IS THE CHURCH, THE TRUE CHURCH, AND HE WENT TO MAKE WAR WITH THE REST OF HER OFFSPRING WHO KEEP THE COMMANDMENTS OF GOD AND HAVE THE TESTIMONY OF JESUS CHRIST. NOW NOTICE HOW THE CHURCH IS DESCRIBED HERE, THE TRUE CHURCH, IS THOSE WHO KEEP THE COMMANDMENTS OF GOD AND HAVE THE TESTIMONY OF JESUS CHRIST, THAT IS THE WORD OF JESUS CHRIST. AND IN REVELATION 14 VERSE 12 IS A SIMILAR SCRIPTURE AND IT SAYS, HERE IS THE PATIENCE OF THE SAINTS, HERE ARE THOSE WHO KEEP THE COMMANDMENTS OF GOD AND THE FAITH OF JESUS. So putting this together, what we find is that the true church is made up of those who faithfully keep the commandments of God, and who are faithful to the Word of Jesus Christ, the teachings of Jesus Christ. The church of God consists of those whose names are registered in heaven in the book of life, and not necessarily... THOSE WHO ARE REGISTERED IN THE MEMBERSHIP ROLE OF SOME PARTICULAR CHURCH ORGANIZATION. PAUL WROTE IN HEBREWS 12, BEGINNING OF THE VERSE 22, YOU'VE COME TO MOUNT ZION AND TO THE CITY OF THE LIVING GOD, THE HEAVENLY JERUSALEM, TO AN innumerable COMPANY OF ANGELS, TO THE GENERAL ASSEMBLY AND CHURCH OF THE FIRSTBORN WHO ARE REGISTERED IN HEAVEN. THE CHURCH OF THE FIRSTBORN who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Now this is a reference to Israel being gathered before God at Mount Sinai to receive the law and to enter into the Old Covenant relationship with God. And it is comparing it to us as figuratively in a sense, appearing before God and being obliged to listen to His Word as we enter into the New Covenant. And It mentions here that we are assembled as the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. So if your name is not written in the book of life because you have repented and received the Spirit of God and received the the down payment on the gift of of eternal life, then you're not part of of the true church of God. If your name is written in the book of life, then you are a part of that church. It is not a visible church. It's not something you can see by going down to the corner somewhere and looking at a building or even a group of people. It is composed of those individuals whose names are written in the book of life who are registered in heaven. That's where the membership role of the true church of God is maintained, not on the earth. So what does that tell us then if we're seeking to be a part of the true church? It means that we need to find a fellowship and a ministry that is teaching faithfully the word of God. And at the same time, we must reject those who malign, who reject or who pervert the teachings of God's word. Now we ought to fellowship with those of like mind, we ought to seek fellowship and we actually ought to seek unity among the brethren, which is problematic given the carnality of human beings as we've already seen, but nevertheless we need to strive to fellowship with those who are truly and genuinely converted and seek out a fellowship where such people are, are to be found. What is the duration of this covenant, the New Covenant? How long is it to be in effect? There are many scriptures in the Old and New Testaments that refer both directly and by way of analogy to the duration of the New Covenant. Now we won't cover all of them, we will mention some of them, but a student of the Bible should understand that the word most often translated forever or everlasting from the Hebrew scriptures In the King James translation, the Hebrew word is Olam, can mean either age lasting or everlasting. And the same is true of the New Testament Greek word, ionios, or ion, which is translated sometimes eternal or forever and so forth. WHEN THESE WORDS ARE APPLIED TO SOMETHING PHYSICAL, THEY GENERALLY MEAN AGE LASTING, NOT ETERNAL OR EVERLASTING IN THE SENSE THAT WE NORMALLY UNDERSTAND THE TERM. THEY MEAN LASTING FOR AN INDEFINITE DURATION OF TIME OR FOR AN AGE. BECAUSE THE SCRIPTURES TELL US THAT THAT WHICH IS PHYSICAL IS ALSO TEMPORARY IN ITS PRESENT FORM. IN PSALM 102 AND BEGINNING OF VERSE 25 IT SAYS, Of old you, God, have laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They shall perish. They shall perish. The earth shall perish. The heavens, the universe, the physical universe is temporary. It will perish. But it goes on to say, you shall endure, speaking of God. Yes, all of them shall wax old like a garment. And as a vesture, you shall change them and they shall be changed. But you, God, are the same, and your years shall have no end. God is eternal. He is spirit, and he is eternal. But the physical things of the universe will perish. Now, when applied to those things that are spiritual, those same words, olam, or ion, or ionios, when they're applied to that which is spiritual, they can mean everlasting as we generally understand the term. That is, something that endures forever, without end. And as we saw, God himself will endure forever, for eternity, for time without end. We see an example of this difference in Exodus 21, verse 6. In Israel, under the Old Covenant, if an Israelite had become an indentured servant due to debt or theft, he was bound to serve his master for six years. But after the six years of service, he was to be released unless the servant chose voluntarily to remain indefinitely in the service of his master, voluntarily. And in that case, in Exodus 21 and verse 6, it says, Then his master shall bring him to the judges, He shall also bring him to the door, to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Notice it says, he shall serve him forever. Now in this case, the Hebrew word translated forever, which is olam, the same word used throughout much of the Old Testament where we see the English word forever. But in this case, that word means for a limited duration of time. And the time being, in this case, as long as he, both he and his master, is alive. Or until the year of Jubilee when all servants of that type were to be released. So it doesn't really mean forever, time without any end. It means an indefinite duration of time or an age. On the other hand, when God appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Horeb, Moses asked God what his name was. And in Exodus 3, we read in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And THE HEBREW HERE MEANS, IN EFFECT, I AM THE ONE WHO EXISTS. I EXIST. I AM THE ETERNAL, IN OTHER WORDS. THE SELF-EXISTING ONE IS WHAT THAT WORD IMPLIES. MOREOVER, GOD SAID TO MOSES, THUS YOU SHALL SAY TO THE CHILDREN OF ISRAEL, THE LORD GOD OF YOUR FATHERS, THE GOD OF ABRAHAM, THE GOD OF ISAAC, AND THE GOD OF JACOB HAS SENT ME TO YOU. THIS IS MY NAME FOREVER. And this is my memorial to all generations. Now, here the word translated forever is the very same word, olam, that we read translated in the scripture having to do with a Hebrew servant. But in this case, forever means for eternity. Because God is eternal. And he will always have this name. The eternal, the self-existing one. So, I hope you can see the difference in how this term might be understood depending on the context. And it should be easily understood that that which endures physically to the end of an age can represent or typify a spiritual counterpart which will last forever. That is, for eternity. And so it is in Scripture. The covenant NOW THERE, AS WE'VE SEEN, THERE ARE VARIOUS COVENANTS MENTIONED IN THE SCRIPTURES. THE COVENANT THAT GOD MADE WITH ABRAHAM IS AN ARCHETYPE OF ALL OF GOD'S COVENANTS, THAT IS, THE IMPORTANT COVENANTS SUCH AS THE OLD AND NEW COVENANTS. IT IS A TYPE OF BOTH THE OLD AND THE NEW COVENANTS. AND GOD SAID TO ABRAHAM IN GENESIS 17 VERSE 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. The Hebrew word is olam. The covenant with Abraham was to be an everlasting covenant. Now that covenant was actually of a dual nature. There were both physical aspects to the covenant as well as spiritual aspects to it. And in its physical aspects, it is an age-lasting covenant. But in the spiritual aspects, it is an everlasting covenant in the sense that we normally understand that term, everlasting. The Old Covenant is also spoken of in the same terms in 2 Kings 17. We find these words concerning the covenant made with Israel when God brought them out of Egypt, in verse 36 of 2 Kings 17. The statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall observe to do forevermore. Now in this case, the word forevermore here is the Hebrew word yom, which can have a number of different meanings. In this context, it means continually. Continually. YOU SHALL OBSERVE THESE LAWS CONTINUALLY. AND THE COVENANT THAT I HAVE MADE WITH YOU, HE SAID, YOU SHALL NOT FORGET. IN 1 Chronicles 16, BEGINNING WITH VERSE 13, WE CATCH AN OVERVIEW OF THE TYPICAL RELATIONSHIP BETWEEN THE ABRAHAMIC COVENANT AND THE EVERLASTING COVENANT WITH ISRAEL. O YOU SEED OF ISRAEL, HIS SERVANT, YOU CHILDREN OF JACOB, HIS CHOSEN ONES, HE IS THE ETERNAL GOD. BE YOU MINDFUL ALWAYS OF HIS COVENANT, THE WORD WHICH HE COMMANDED TO A THOUSAND GENERATIONS, EVEN OF THE COVENANT WHICH HE MADE WITH ABRAHAM. NOW, NOTICE THEY WERE TOLD TO REMEMBER THE COVENANT THAT GOD MADE WITH ABRAHAM AND OF HIS OATH TO ISAAC. AND HAS CONFIRMED THE SAME TO JACOB FOR A LAW, AND TO ISRAEL FOR AN EVERLASTING COVENANT. AND IN THIS CASE THE HEBREW WORD IS OLAM. THE COVENANT WITH ABRAHAM, AS I SAID, WAS AN ARCHETYPE OF THE OLD COVENANT. AND THE COVENANT THAT GOD ESTABLISHED WITH ISRAEL WAS FOUNDED ON THE BASIS OF THE COVENANT WITH ABRAHAM. AND IT WAS AN EVERLASTING COVENANT. AND YET THE OLD COVENANT IN THE FORM IN WHICH IT WAS GIVEN TO ISRAEL WAS INTENDED TO BE TEMPORARY. ALTHOUGH THE PRINCIPLES BEHIND IT WERE ETERNAL SPIRITUAL PRINCIPLES. IT CONTAINED ELEMENTS WHICH ARE ETERNAL, WHICH ARE UNCHANGING. AND YET IT WAS A PHYSICAL COVENANT AND IT WAS INTENDED TO BE TEMPORARY. THE OLD COVENANT BECAME OBSOLESCENT WITH THE DEATH OF JESUS CHRIST. THE COVENANT WITH ISRAEL IS LIKENED IN VARIOUS PLACES TO A MARRIAGE COVENANT. FOR EXAMPLE, IN JEREMIAH 31, IN VERSE 31, IT SAYS, BEHOLD, THE DAYS ARE COMING, SAYS THE LORD, WHEN I WILL MAKE A NEW COVENANT WITH THE HOUSE OF ISRAEL AND THE HOUSE OF JUDAH, NOT ACCORDING TO THE COVENANT THAT I MADE WITH THEIR FATHERS IN THE DAY THAT I TOOK THEM BY THE HAND TO LEAD THEM OUT OF THE LAND OF EGYPT, MY COVENANT WHICH THEY BROKE, THOUGH I WAS A HUSBAND to them, says the Lord. So notice that God speaks here, and this is repeated elsewhere in the scriptures as well, is spoken of as a marriage covenant. It's like a marriage agreement. And in that sense, God was the husband and Israel was the wife in that agreement. Now Paul refers to this type of relationship and connection with the covenants in Romans chapter 7 beginning with verse 1 he says do you not know brethren for I speak to those who know the law that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives but if the husband dies She is released from the law of her husband. What Paul is saying here is that according to the law of Scripture, a marriage was intended to last for the duration of one's life. And when one of the partners dies, then that relationship is dissolved. And the person who remains alive is no longer bound to the person who has died, as far as the law is concerned. Now, he goes on to say in verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law, the law here being the Old Covenant. You have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Now, this is kind of an involved and convoluted logic that Paul is using here, but when we enter into the new covenant, we are baptized, which represents, in a sense, the death of the old man. And so, in that sense, we do die as to the old covenant and any obligations we might have to the old covenant, when we enter into the new covenant through baptism and conversion. In Hebrews 8 verse 13, Paul wrote in that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So by the very use of the term where God said I'm going to make a new covenant by 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 logic, by simple logic, that means that the previous covenant is obsolete. It's being replaced by a new covenant. Now, I'm going to digress for a moment here because I don't want people to misunderstand that, as many have, that the fact that the old covenant is obsolete, that, that means we're free to disregard God's laws As GIVEN TO US AS A PART OF THAT COVENANT. WE NEED TO UNDERSTAND THAT THE CHANGE FROM A PHYSICAL TO A SPIRITUAL MANIFESTATION OF THE COVENANT DOES NOT RELIEVE A CHRISTIAN FROM PHYSICAL OBEDIENCE TO THE LAWS OF GOD. WE MUST OBEY THE LAW AS IT APPLIES TO OUR PHYSICAL BEHAVIOR, REALIZING THAT UNDER THE INSTITUTION OF THE NEW COVENANT, SOME OF THE PHYSICAL FORMS MANIFESTING THE SPIRITUAL LAW ARE CHANGED. For example, we are not required to be physically circumcised under the new covenant in order to enter into that covenant. We are required, however, to be physically baptized, as we will discuss in more detail later. Also, we're not required to offer the physical animal sacrifices and the other sacrifices, the drink offerings and the meal offerings and so forth that were offered in the temple service of the Old Covenant. We're not obliged, we're not bound by those sacrificial rules. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself physically, however, and we are also required to make physical sacrifices of our own. For example, in Romans 15 and verse 27, Paul is writing to the church about the people in Judea, the brethren in Judea, and it says, It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors, for if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, speaking of the church that began in Palestine, in Judea, if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. This is a reference to a collection from Gentile churches who were obliged to give aid to the Jews in Palestine in a time of need, a time of famine. And so they were, what Paul is saying is that they were obliged to sacrifice some of their material goods in order to help others in time of need. And there are other sacrifices that we are called upon to make as a part of the church. Not the same sacrifices in detail that were required under the Old Covenant. But nevertheless, we are required to sacrifice. Also, under the New Covenant is still wrong, for a few examples, to eat food sacrificed to idols, or to eat blood, or to commit sexual immorality. For example, in Revelation 2 and verse 20, Jesus speaking to one of the ears of the church says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. See, we're not to be doing those things. In Acts 15 verse 20, the church had determined that it was not necessary for Gentile converts to be physically circumcised, but they did say that we will write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols. In other words, idol sacrifices from sexual immorality and from things strangled and from blood. Things strangled would mean animals that were not properly bled. And so someone who was eating the flesh of such an animal would be eating blood. And so the church was specifically instructed that they were forbidden to eat the flesh of animals that were not properly bled or from eating blood itself. Revelation 2 and verse 14, again Jesus said to the church, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So, the fact that we are not bound by the old covenant does not mean that we are free to disregard the laws of God as they apply under the new covenant. Now, again, often the specific ways that certain laws apply is different under the new covenant, but nevertheless the laws apply as we've covered in more detail earlier. The Old Covenant was a type of the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was an age-lasting covenant. It was a temporary covenant. But it symbolized the everlasting New Covenant and what it represented and what it pictured. So the Old Covenant was temporary, and lasted for an age, but the new covenant is a permanent and everlasting covenant. And we will get into that in more detail as we go along here. Consider God, who is offering us an opportunity to enter into this covenant with Him. One of God's primary names, as a matter of fact, the name which He uses in connection with His covenant, His covenant name, so to speak, is THE ETERNAL, YAHWEH, THE EVER-LIVING OR THE ETERNAL ONE. OR AS IT IS IN ITS EXPANDED FORM, JESUS CHRIST. THE NAME JESUS CHRIST ACTUALLY IS ROOTED IN THE HEBREW, AND THE FULL MEANING OF THE NAME JESUS CHRIST IS THE ETERNAL SAVIOR, KING, AND HIGH PRIEST. AND YOU COULD ALSO ADD APOSTLE, BECAUSE JESUS IS ALSO THE CHIEF APOSTLE OF THE CHURCH. AND ALL OF THAT IS INCLUDED IN WHAT THE NAME JESUS CHRIST SIGNIFIES, THE ETERNAL GOD WHO IS OUR SAVIOR, OUR KING, OUR HIGH PRIEST, AND OUR CHIEF APOSTLE. THAT IS THE COVENANT NAME OF GOD. AND AS WE SAW EARLIER IN PSALM 102 AND VERSE 17, AS FAR AS GOD IS CONCERNED, IT SAYS HIS YEARS SHALL HAVE NO END. AND THERE ARE MANY SCRIPTURES IN THE BIBLE WHICH TELL US THAT GOD IS ETERNAL, EVER LIVING. Consider the reward of the covenant to the people. We're told the reward of this covenant is eternal life. Now, under the old covenant, the people of Israel were promised certain blessings, but they weren't necessarily promised eternal life. Now, it was available under the old covenant, but it wasn't necessarily a promise to everyone who entered into that covenant because they were physical and carnal people for the most part, and not converted. But under the new covenant, those who enter into it must be converted, and they are promised eternal life. In Romans 6 and verse 23, it says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And those who enter into the new covenant and remain faithful will become sons of God, members of the divine family, THE GOD FAMILY, THEY WILL BE SONS OF GOD MADE IN THE LIKENESS OF GOD. JUST LIKE IF YOU ARE A PARENT AND YOU HAVE CHILDREN, YOUR CHILDREN HAVE YOUR NATURE. THEY HAVE YOUR LIKENESS. THEY MAY NOT LOOK EXACTLY LIKE YOU LOOK, BUT THEY HAVE YOUR GENERAL LIKENESS AND CERTAINLY YOUR NATURE, HUMAN NATURE. And the same is true of God's sons. Once individuals are fully born into the kingdom of God through the resurrection, they will bear the likeness and image of God in the fullest sense that is possible. As John wrote, 1 John 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. We are children of God now. But he goes on to say, It's not yet been revealed what we shall be BUT WE KNOW THAT WHEN HE IS REVEALED, WE SHALL BE LIKE HIM. WE SHALL BE LIKE HIM. FOR WE SHALL SEE HIM AS HE IS. SO WHEN CHRIST RETURNS AND THERE'S THE RESURRECTION TO ETERNAL LIFE, WE WILL BE LIKE CHRIST. THOSE WHO OVERCOME SHALL INHERIT THE UNIVERSE, AND THEY SHALL DWELL WITH THE ETERNAL GOD FOREVER. AS IT TELLS US IN REVELATION 21 AND VERSE 3, I HEARD A LOUD VOICE FROM HEAVEN, Saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And this will be God, even God the Father, then, coming down to dwell on the earth with mankind. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And then in verse 6, it says, And he said to me, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, that is, everything, the universe. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So God will dwell with his family for eternity. Now, consider the mercy that God extends to us through that covenant relationship. And that is one of the main features of the covenant. In Hebrews 8 and verse 12, we're reading of the covenant, the new covenant, it says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Now that mercy, according to God's word, is everlasting. AS IT SAYS IN PSALM 103 AND VERSE 17, THE MERCY OF THE ETERNAL IS FROM EVERLASTING TO EVERLASTING UPON THEM THAT FEAR HIM. NOW CONSIDER THE LAW OF GOD, WHICH IS TO BE WRITTEN AND ENGRAVED IN THE HEARTS OF HIS PEOPLE AS ONE OF THE MAIN FEATURES OF THE NEW COVENANT. AS WE READ IN HEBREWS 8 AND VERSE 10, FOR THIS IS THE COVENANT THAT I WILL MAKE WITH THE HOUSE OF ISRAEL AFTER THOSE DAYS, SAYS THE LORD, I WILL PUT MY LAWS IN THEIR MIND AND WRITE THEM ON THEIR HEARTS AND I WILL BE THEIR GOD AND THEY SHALL BE MY PEOPLE. NOW THE LAWS OF THE FIRST COVENANT, THE OLD COVENANT, WERE ENGRAVED IN STONE, THE MOST DURABLE SUBSTANCE AVAILABLE TO SIGNIFY THE PERMANENT, ENDURING, EVERLASTING QUALITY OF THOSE LAWS. WE CAN STILL FIND MONUMENTS OF STONE ON WHICH WERE ENGRAVED WRITINGS THOUSANDS OF YEARS AGO. AND SO THE WRITING ON THE STONE WAS INTENDED TO SIGNIFY THE ENDURING NATURE OF THAT LAW. DEUTERONOMY 4, VERSE 13 SAYS, SO HE DECLARED TO YOU HIS COVENANT, WHICH HE COMMANDED YOU TO PERFORM, THE TEN commandments, WHICH WERE AT THE HEART OF THE COVENANT, AND HE WROTE THEM ON TWO TABLETS OF STONE. And this typifies the eternal spiritual law of God. Those laws are spiritual laws. And the law of God is spiritual in its essence. As we read in Romans 7 and verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And the law of God in its spiritual form is an eternal, immutable law. As we read in Psalm 111, beginning with verse 7, it says, The works of His hands are verity, or truth, and judgment. All His commandments are sure, they stand fast forever and ever, and are done in truth and uprightness. And in Psalm 119, verse 44, it says, So shall I keep your law forever and ever. And in Psalm 119, beginning with verse 151, it says, You are near, O eternal, and all your commandments are truth. Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. So we have an eternal law, and we have an eternal God. We have everlasting mercy. We're promised eternal life. The kingdom of which we have said the new covenant is the constitution, is an everlasting kingdom. In Psalm 145, verse 13, it says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, whereas it says in the margin of one of my Bibles, a kingdom of all ages. And your dominion, it says, endures throughout all generations. In Daniel 7, beginning with verse 13, IT SAYS, I SAW IN THE NIGHT VISIONS, AND BEHOLD, ONE LIKE THE SON OF MAN CAME WITH THE CLOUDS OF HEAVEN AND CAME TO THE ANCIENT OF DAYS, AND THEY BROUGHT HIM NEAR BEFORE HIM. AND THERE WAS GIVEN TO HIM A DOMINION AND GLORY AND A KINGDOM THAT ALL PEOPLE, NATIONS AND LANGUAGES, SHOULD SERVE HIM. HIS DOMINION IS AN EVERLASTING DOMINION WHICH SHALL NOT PASS AWAY and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. The saints of the Most High shall possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever, it says. So we have a spiritual covenant typified by an everlasting or an age-lasting covenant agreed to between an eternal God and his eternal sons who will be eternal, GIVEN ETERNAL LIFE ENCOMPASSING THE EVERLASTING MERCY OF GOD AND HIS IMMUTABLE SPIRITUAL ETERNAL LAW. THE COVENANT ITSELF THEN OBVIOUSLY MUST BE AN EVERLASTING OR ETERNAL COVENANT. AND THUS WE FIND THE FOLLOWING WORDS DESCRIBING THE FUTURE KINGDOM OF GOD IN JEREMIAH CHAPTER 32 BEGINNING WITH VERSE 38, THEY SHALL BE MY PEOPLE AND I WILL BE THEIR GOD. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and for their children after them and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And in this case, everlasting means everlasting. It means for eternity. Also in Hebrews 13 verse 20, as well as other places, this covenant is described as an everlasting covenant. Hebrews 13 and verse 20, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. This series of sermons on the two covenants is not intended to be a detailed discussion of every possible question concerning the relationship between the old and new covenants. It is intended to be only a basic introduction to the subject, providing an overview from which more details with the help of specific scriptures might be deduced. Now I've found it necessary to go into considerable detail regarding certain points because this is one of the most misunderstood and confused subjects in the entire Bible. Now, very few people have properly and correctly understood the New Covenant and the Old Covenant and the relationship between the two. But I hope that having this information, you will carefully and prayerfully consider the points made in our discussion of the Old and New Covenants. I believe if you do, that God will richly reward you with a clarity of understanding that will provide greater security and peace of mind in the knowledge of the truth. It can be proven that the Bible is a unified whole, that God is indeed consistent in His dealings with mankind, that God is no respecter of persons, and that truly in His light there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning.